appreciation for expectation. And I think whether you're talking about how you look at the market or how you look at life, golly, I don't know if that doesn't answer just about every one of my dilemmas, questions, challenges, more appreciation and less expectation. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Investing City podcast, where the goal is to get better at investing, business, and life. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us. It really means a lot. Without further ado, enjoy this episode. On this episode of the Investing City podcast, we are happy to host Ryan Kruger. Ryan, along with his partner, left Wall Street to start their own firm, Kruger and Catalano, just before the financial crisis, over 11 years ago now. The two serve clients in the best way they know how out of Houston, Texas. As you'll see, Ryan is incredibly down-to-earth and has lots of real-world wisdom. By the end of it, you'll probably come away thinking, I'd like to be friends with that guy. We talk about personal pensions, the 401k illusion, an amazing story about his grandfather, and much, much more. Please enjoy this conversation with Ryan Kruger. We are super happy to have Ryan Kruger on as a guest. So thank you so much for being here, Ryan. It is my honor to be here. Thank you. Great. So let's just get into some of your background. So you were at a Wall Street firm, one of the biggest out there. Can you just tell us about how you got there, whether you were interested in money from an early age, and kind of your progression just to leading up to that firm? Okay. Um, my first memory of a fascination with the stock market actually turning into a transaction was when I was about 10 years old and begged my dad to take this cigar box full of a couple wadded up bills that I had made and a baseball card trading glorious summer into a little computer stock that I thought made a lot of sense, had absolutely no idea, of course, what I was doing. And I remember fondly because it was a Houston company compact computers and they had just ryan they had just introduced a their portable pc uh, weighing in at a sprightly 28 pounds um and fortunately for me that first trade worked and i was hooked and uh i i don't know really how to explain it other than kind of all along during high school and college i was genuinely interested read voraciously um, and kind of always thought uh, that that would be something I'd be super interested in. Um, and I vividly recall showing up with a brand new suit I probably bought from Sears with my mother's help to try an interview at Smith Barney. And they told me we don't interview kids your age. And so that dream was going to be over fast, I thought, and I really didn't know what to do. I, I, I had no other plans. I had no other leads. I had no other interests, frankly, and so I went home, and I don't know if it was a day or two or a week. It wasn't much. Um, 
crafted what I fondly recall as my Hail Mary letter and said, I want to come back anyways, and you don't have to interview me, but I want to talk to you. And here's what I think, and here's what I believe in, and miraculously, he decided to give me a shot in the mailroom, and I started. <laughs> that is incredible. Um, but first, just before we get into some of that, so how did you find compact computers? Like, were you reading the news, or how did you find that at 10 years old? You know, I, I, I don't remember specifically. I certainly have to give my, my dad credit for probably having talked about capitalism a lot. I mean, he grew up dirt poor on a farm in the middle of Texas, and I wasn't blessed with any gifts DNA-wise physically, but I do remember fondly knowing that he got up and started working at 4.35 o'clock, and I guess I got that bug. And then how do you make your money work hard for you? Um, and getting to know his dad and how hard he had worked, we would probably talk about that kind of stuff at the dinner table. We'd, we'd read, maybe he'd circle something or hand me a book or a magazine. And I certainly think is not happening nearly enough at dinner tables anymore. Um, but I was in love with capitalism at an early age for some reason. And, and I also worked jobs to, I, I liked the idea of saving up a little money to be able to invest. Um, so I was, I was the kid that was always trying to figure out how to go to work. So I, I'm, I'm grateful for a lot of that. And I, I look back and I, I try to find examples for, for my kids and my clients' kids of how that discomfort is actually a blessing. And it's because of that, that the great success stories often are correlated, not in spite of it. So you mentioned discomfort. Can you just talk a little bit about that and kind of what your relationship with discomfort is? Well, I guess in rewinding the tape, you're, you're probably right. And it may have not been till 30 years later that I realized that. I mean, my business hero was also very close to home for me. It was my grandfather who was rejected by every bank when he had his first little bitty business idea um, of running a lunch counter inside of a Southwestern Bell Telephone Company in San Antonio, Texas. And he wanted to just figure out how to get a couple of bucks together and work his butt off with a push cart and go deliver snacks. And he couldn't get it. Um, for one reason, he was completely blind. So there was a lot of good reasons probably not to extend credit. But he ended up scrounging together $53 and building that little push cart that he turned into a little bitty cafeteria that became two and then three. And he was my business hero. I would sit at his knee as a little kid and just listen. And for whatever reason was hooked on his story. So I am immensely lucky to have grown up around that kind of stuff. And it just stuck with me. And, and, and I, now respect and realize years later that luck has an awful lot to do with any successful business or person that I know. And it's probably underestimated. I just happen to think that luck might be hiding as discomfort sometimes and just how you deal with it. So I really want to talk about this grandpa of yours talking about you're just sitting on his feet, listening to all the business lessons. 
Is there any particular one that you remember or you still hold on to today? Well, he was fiercely independent. I mean, he he's um, every time I go back, I, I listen and and hang on every story. He's not with us anymore, but he actually led an escape from a blind school where he and a bunch of kids were being mistreated. Their parents had just dropped him off and gotten rid of him and escaped and actually ended up holding the state record in the 50 yard dash, which I was amazed by and learning about and just kept pulling back the covers and made those first couple of bucks playing in a band. He taught himself how to play the drums. So that independence carried forward where in the, the business that I watched, and it's hard to remember exactly as a kid, but I think now I, I, I think trust, but verify, I think he would, I still have his little handheld recorder where he would get the numbers and the summary every single day, much later in his life when he wasn't touching everything. Um, and when I say touching everything, I mean, he designed the first little cafeteria with Braille instead of hiring an architect. So, and I, I hold some of those treasures to this day. Um, I think fiercely independent would be one of them. I remember he would never, ever, ever want anybody to know he was blind and the way he walked and carried himself. Um, he wasn't ashamed. He just wanted to be, he was proud. Um, so, and you actually would not know that he was completely blind. So I guess those, those things stuck with me and he worked his tail off as did his wife with him, who was a partner in all that. And another incredible lesson that I've really learned from my clients, frankly, over the years is the most important piece of any financial plan. And it took me a long time to realize this, um, is who you marry. Wow, that is an interesting point because I think not a lot of people talk about that. Can you expand on that a little bit? Well, I just think you, you from the early days of Wall Street where I look back and got to learn every single page of the, the biggest, deepest playbook around. By the time I left, you know, Citigroup was the largest global bank in the world. And you are understandably learning about all these sophisticated tools and the smarter you think you are about each one of them, you know, the further you're getting away from some of the things that stand the test of time for a reason. And, and I think there's a little bit of arrogance in some of those avenues and, and, and situations as well, where you think you're smarter uh, than the rest of the room and you come back and then you learn and you watch more humbly as I have enjoyed doing, which are the families and the businesses that have actually stood the test of time. And they've outlasted all the wall street products, by the way. And what did they have in common? And I started taking notes and I was genuinely interested and I would sit and ask and learn as much from them. And it, it helps when you've been with families, we have three generations as, as clients in some cases, some of them turning a hundred years old I was genuinely interested in their playbook as well as a dad, as a, as a husband, as a business owner. And I remember vividly somebody telling me what you'll learn. And it was a female and I didn't realize it when she said it, but the most important part of any plan is who you marry. And I really believe that. Can you just tell us a little bit more about this longevity playbook as you took notes and kind of some of the commonalities that you found? Um, purpose, meaning more than a, 
a job or a goal or a plan. I mean, genuinely being in love with a craft, I think, is something that too few people either want, understand, or appreciate, or, or, or willing and patient enough to, to really dive deep, whether it be apprentice and, and learn a craft. Um, I mean, if you're going to be a chef, I think you need to start washing dishes first and all your way up, according to some restaurant owners that I know and respect. And I think you could apply that same in my business and everybody else's to really uh, have a purpose that you are genuinely excited about. I think there's been some science that proves that a great book called Blue Zones talks about that. And they studied people that live till 100 and regions around the world where there's a heavy concentration of them and the purpose was a big part of it. Um, and obviously, uh, living, living right and eating right and, uh, and, and doing right doesn't hurt either, but I've noticed that commonality amongst folks that, uh, especially later years, it may not be the same job or profession, but they found some purpose that's bigger than them. And I think it kind of drags them along and, and keeps their legs moving and their their brain moving i think those are the two secret ingredients totally um so let's just backtrack a little bit going back to kind of when you started at smith and barney so you wouldn't take no for an answer and they agreed to let you start in the mailroom so then can you tell us about how you handled the mailroom and just kind of your thoughts about starting from maybe the very bottom and then how you um, had the mental fortitude and kind of the attitude in order to work your way up. You know, I, I might've just been too blissfully ignorant to worry about um, other options or um, I, I never was upset by that. $22,000 a year salary I think I started at or uh, loading those giant cartridges of the whatever the dry powder for ink was as as the brokers were churning out all their glossy proposals. I just had some sort of sense for some reason that I was working for my future, not for the company. So if that was the case, then I never minded putting in extra time. It also helped that I was a nerd and didn't have a whole lot of social life. I would, I mean, I'd work six days a week and I would study on the side with always the idea in mind that, and I didn't know how wrong this was, by the way, but I, I still had this idea that this was about figuring out investments and turning over rocks. And eventually I, I would get to be the one who was doing that, however silly, maybe to the management team that might have seemed at the time, I didn't bother to ask him. So I just kept reading and studying and learning. And I was also a sponge. I was curious. I would constantly ask questions and whoever was willing to talk to me, um, we would sit and some of them were kind enough to share and some of them I'm still friends with to this day. And I certainly aim to do the exact same for somebody willing to start at the bottom. I love that, just paying it forward. Um, so let's kind of move on to when you're at that firm, you've kind of worked your way up now, and I believe you're a portfolio manager 
And then kind of your thought process about leaving that firm and kind of leaving Wall Street behind. Yep. Um, so for some reason or another, I was able to convince some folks to trust me with no track record, no network whatsoever. Um, my only promise is the same oath that remains true today. I will share with you from all the research I've done, here's what I'm willing to put my money behind, what little I had. Um, and if you are interested in the same, um, and I'll even talk to you about how we think about reverse engineering all these different products and offerings to just have the simple core ingredients in your own account, the beautifully boring stocks and bonds that needed no extra middle layers. Um, thankfully, did right by people for a long time, generated a lot of trust. Uh, most importantly for me, enjoyed the heck out of doing it. Um, so it was very much a partnership. And along the way, Wall Street was changing and about to go through one of their uh, regular crisis. And um, there wasn't any one event or reason or problem. I look back fondly and had a, a, a great run and am grateful for that opportunity. But I did always have in mind that I'm going to learn every single page of this playbook and I'm going to write a few of my own from it and do this on my own um, with a partner who very much felt the same way I did. And we were thinking as business owners really very early on there and, and went out of our way to write our own research, write our own communication. But that became increasingly difficult. They didn't want people with independent thoughts, and they frankly shut down most communication altogether. And one of the final blows was when I would always sign every note, your partner. And I didn't just say that. I, I acted it. I meant it. I felt it, and as, as did the ones who I was serving. And they said that was no longer compliant. Among many other communication uh, avenues that they were shutting down because they were going through their own uh, storms where the easiest answer was just pull up all the drawbridges. And if there's one or two bad actors, then if we shut down communication for all of them, then we can limit our risk. But that just wasn't OK with me. So it was a great opportunity to uh, call my partner and say, let's meet at the International House of Pancakes. The only, I, I'd never been, but I always drove by and it was very brightly lit in the middle of the night. Uh, so we could sit down at a table and plan our escape. And I've got that menu on my, my wall as you and I are talking right now. And we did it. And what's that menu? The, the, the IHOP menu from I, I just Oh, the actual IHOP say. menu. <laughs> I wanted to, I mean, it was literally a business on the back of a napkin and based on simplicity and trust. And um, we simply offered to do for others as we planned on doing for ourselves for a very long time. And it has worked out great. That's awesome. So you met your partner while working on Wall Street? I did. And he's very different complimentary forces. He's a New Yorker. 
from Queens and I'm from Texas and it is a wonderful eclectic mix. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, so I want to talk a little bit about how I found out about you. So I think in college, actually, I stumbled across one of your blog posts and for some reason it really just resonated me. Um, you have a really good friendly tone when you're writing. Um, so just tell us a little bit about how you think about blogging and how you use content to kind of interact with people or whether it's just to get your thoughts out. So tell us a little bit about like content and your blog. Well, that's awfully nice. I didn't know if I was allowed to ask questions on your podcast, but I was certainly curious why after such legends, you've already got a murderer's row of a batting lineup on your great podcast. I wondered if you were mixed up in some sort of Brewster's Millions game <laughs> of podcasting where you're trying to lose all your listeners in one day. Um, that's awfully nice. Thank you. There is no strategy. There is no game plan. We don't have a marketing department. I just found um, I, I've always written to really just to make me smarter and every single one of those efforts is a giant rabbit hole that I'll find myself running down and off in many different directions that forces me to research something that even if I thought I knew what I was talking about, the pressure of printing and hitting send is a big one to me. Um, and so it doesn't come easily to me. I don't uh, just let it flow and I don't do a lot. Selfishly, I get to find a lot of smart people um, and interact with them. And I have found, I mean, I, I don't know if it was Twitter that, that we met. I mean, the kindness of strangers and the genuine curiosity and smart network, um, I think is wildly underrated compared to all the complaints I hear. I, I have zero. And, and I've, I, I think in our industry, this notion of competition, which Wall Street really drills into you, whether you like it or not. And it took me years to kind of deprogram that we have no competition we're you know one grain of sand on a beach of the assets under management of all of us so the idea of sharing ideas and sparking genuine interest and relationships is a win-win but i enjoy even more some of the interaction afterwards with people a lot smarter than me on certain areas yeah you touched on a lot of good things right there um, in terms of Twitter, which I think is an incredible resource for meeting like-minded people. And also you're talking about competition. Um, I remember, I forget who wrote the blog post, but it was basically somebody saying they went to a conference where Ken Fisher was there. And uh, Fisher Investments has, I forget, like $100 billion under management or something like that. And he was basically saying, yeah, we have like less than one percent of the world's assets so even us like one of the biggest rias uh, basically there's a lot more that we can a lot more market share to take so like basically nobody is competing since there are so many assets out there um but well, maybe he has two grains of sand then <laughs> yeah maybe he has two. Right. <laughs> exactly <laughs> um but yeah i want to talk about so just reading your blog, which I definitely suggest that people do that. I'll link it in the show notes. But um, you have some kind of unconventional ways to look at financial advice, I'd say, and very down to earth, very simple. So can you talk about um, 
kind of the simplicity in your model and how that's kind of carried you? Yeah, and it's, I think, the holy grail for any business, not just ours, is informed simplicity. And I think, had I not taken so many long cuts and experienced what I have, just like any craftsman who's willing to learn, then I wouldn't be able to so confidently share that it's informed simplicity that I think holds up well against any complex financial model. So I I would put that caveat in there. I think a lot of folks that just want it simple or easy or shortcuts or retire early or the the, the leanest model wins, I, I think you want informed simplicity. So really for me, it was that giant thick playbook that I completely respected and learned the hard way and the long way and and trying to learn having run um, the most complex, I've run a couple of hedge funds. We've run giant pools of assets for institutions and dealt with the most sophisticated investors in the world. But my epiphany was realizing that the families that I most enjoy serving, which I affectionately call the merely wealthy, and and that's the reason that I titled that the blog, and it was a final tip of the cap to the old Wall Street model that only wanted to deal with the ultra high net worth as their margins kept eroding. I had this crazy notion that they don't have to, and there's a much more grateful group of folks who needs help even more. And that's small business owners and good old fashioned families. Um, So I think when I finally realized after having helped and thankfully successfully worked through all those sophisticated models that these people really only had two questions. And most of them were probably polite enough to never interrupt one of these high level presentations and ask it. But in the end of the day, in their heart of hearts, they want to know Am I going to be okay? And that's a big question. And it's, it means for my family, if I'm not here, are they going to be okay? Am I going to be okay means how much risk am I really taking? Am I going to be okay if something bad happens? Am I going to be okay meaning am I not, not getting ripped off in costs? Am I not losing too much in taxes? Am I not that the, the, that's all of the am I going to be okay? And I think there are not nearly, I think there is not nearly enough time given answering that question, just removing capital from harm's way after you've worked your tail off for it, knowing at least some is going to be okay. Then number two is how much is enough? I mean, most of these folks that I serve have have grown up in households under very different circumstances. So their DNA was, you know, do you save enough and then low off the interest? Well, we don't have 15% T-bills. So that was, you know, 20 years ago, the financial planning industry was born. I mean, how do we allocate? How do we diversify? And then how do we withdraw just enough so that we don't upset the, and then the, the market goes up or down. And, you know, I, I look back and I'm just a simple math nerd. And the financial plans that I left behind were in, in several different flavors, all of them were relying on some version of a projection for markets working over time. And that in the long term, it's always going to work. Just hang in there, which we've instructed our clients to fire us if they ever, ever 
hear those words? Well, the simple math of a market that is up at the end of the year, any decimal point between 5% and 10%, which is a giant range that almost all projections and pontificators and market experts will, will land somewhere in there. It's actually only happened eight times in 118 years. So if you think about that for a second, it's really how do we deal with any market, not an average market? And then so after we answer that question of am I going to be okay, then we really want to answer the bigger question, especially for successful folks, how, how much is enough? And I don't think that's an asset number like we were all raised to believe on Wall Street. I don't think it's how much you 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 put on this giant mountain of assets that they want to make sure you keep invested, by the way. And that's the new conflict of interest since they went to the fee model. I, I think it's a couple of different things. One, I think it's an income number. How much is enough is what can I generate in free cash flow for the rest of my life so I don't have to worry about all the hows and the whats of investing and I can focus exclusively on why. So how much is enough is also, I think what's really excited me and opened my eyes is it can be very different for folks. I mean, that last blog post that I think one of the ones you referenced talks about a guy who lives on $9 a day, like a king front row on the beach in Mexico and a guy that burns through every penny of $700,000 a year in income, not because he's spending lavishly. He just happens to have very aggressive giving goals and has a much bigger purpose than just spending that money. And those two wildly different examples of folks that we actually serve and plan for happen to be brothers. So it can definitely be done in different ways. Uh, you touched on a lot of great things. One in particular is the fact is that, that the your polite way of saying rambling? <laughs> that is not. That is not. I appreciate your self-deprecating humor, but it's not. Um, so you said that eight, in 118 years, only eight times has the market actually fallen within the range of 5 to 10%. And that's just a testament to what an average is, right? So if the market, you know, on average goes up, maybe you hear a bunch of different estimates, but let's say like six to eight percent over whenever the market has been open, only eight times has it actually fallen about that average. So when you're kind of talking about, and if you read through um, the blog, you'll hear this term personal pension, basically that through what you're talking about, the free cash flow um, that you want clients to generate essentially covers the cost. Can you talk a little bit just about the idea of personal pension? Well, yeah, I mean, the, the other of two oaths that we take, one, you're going to see exactly what we own personally and nothing more, nothing less. And if you choose to trust us, that's the kind of, I mean, that's the kind of chef I want to sit down at the table with and eat with. So that's the only way we know how to do it. The other oath is we're going to tell you what you need to hear, not what you want to hear. So part of that calculation and backing into the number, and this is all again, learned. I mean, one of my heroes that I was reading books when I was that kid um, through a giant bull market that, again, I didn't realize how much luck had to do with it. You know, one of the greatest stock pickers of all time, Peter Lynch. 
I, I devoured books like that. But I then came to realize when he said you should have all your money in stocks because they average 11 percent a year and you can take out eight percent and you can retire with no bonds. I remember vividly before we walked out, we posed that question to a room full of advisors with billions of dollars. And I said, well, how much do you think is left at the end of 30 years? And I spotted them from those are real numbers from 90, 68 to 98. The market averaged 11 percent. You take out eight net. No funny business. What are you left with? And all these big numbers. And the answer was you're bankrupt in 13 years because of the sequence of returns. So I do think the most dangerous word in financial planning is average. Um, so we like the idea of figuring out exactly what someone needs and wants to live on as their annual income. And then I wouldn't suggest anybody dream of retiring until they can walk away with multiple streams of income that exceeds that with a huge margin of error. And that is free cash flow. It's not projections, not market returns, not capital gains, not trading. So that once that exceeds it, it's, it's my belief that you have something better than retirement. You have financial freedom to do whatever in the world you want. And the only benchmark we use for that calculation, besides their need, is it must last till 100. And if it's not for you, then it's for your spouse. Um, some, you know, 10 years ago, we'd get a giggle and a, I don't want that. That's ridiculous. Now, all of a sudden, people are realizing that, especially the ones that have a, a great purpose, they want to live till 100. And they certainly um, want to make sure that their spouse is okay if they happen to. And the longevity numbers are such that the other reason average is such a dangerous dangerous word, not just in the market returns, but in these plans that people are basing on average life expectancies, the math is wrong. Because once somebody reaches 65, the average life expectancy no longer matters. The new question is, what's the average life expectancy for a 65-year-old couple? And it's greater than 50-50, someone is into their 90s. That math is the most underrated aspect that's going to ruin most financial projections based on average rates of return and life expectancies that I just don't think is, is being paid enough attention to. And I don't think it's a problem. Is this, this, is, this should be something that we, this is an unbelievable blessing that people are living longer and better. Now we just need to make sure that you can't outlive your money. And I think the way to do that is to focus on income as opposed to asset totals. It's funny you brought that up with the averages and the age, because I was going to ask that exact question. So that's really interesting that if you're 65, basically you or a spouse has a 50-50 chance of getting into their 90s. That kind of changes the whole calculus, right? If you, ha if you had the expectation that you're only going to live till 85 or something like that. So I think that's cool that you provide that margin of safety for 100. Um, but one other thing I kind of just want to hear from you is about this um, illusion of the 401k. So you have a really good blog post about how the 401k um, came to be and how it now is way different than its original roots. So can you just um, talk to us about that? Well, as always, I'll, I guess it's I'm, my third chef analogy. I must be hungry. The, the original chef, I always respect the 
originator of the very first 401k, when he says, I created a monster, it raised my eyebrow. Um, What did he mean? Why did he say that? I mean, this is a very humble son of a dairy farmer, actuary from Pennsylvania, Ted Benna. And I I nerd out with the history of his background and, and the original tax code in there for anybody um, that, that wants to dive in there, but it was never intended to be a retirement account. It was an extra savings account. And thanks to the collision of a couple of very strong forces, companies wanting to save money and individuals wanting to make more money spiked with a bull market, it became the new retirement account, even though it was never intended. So when you go from defined benefit plans to defined contribution plans, the companies are putting all um, of the responsibility and the costs on to the employee. Um, So that helped them. So you can understand why that train will never reverse. And then the market was such that when I started in this business, nobody in the world wanted to just have a boring old pension plan they wanted to become a 401k millionaire so they were banging the table for it and more and more choices and more and more funds and benna talked about how it got out of control and it also created this giant industry which is going to be very hard to reverse and the lobbying efforts are 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 just as strong of the mutual fund so um now you have five trillion dollars and as people have gotten a little older um you know we actually have so much fun around here we hired a cartoonist to do a better job of me than explaining this and i think i put it in that blog where it is as if the pilot jumps out of the plane right as you're retiring and says you're in control now all the instruments are up front how do you do this so Saving and accumulation is frankly the easy part and and, and even as hard as that is and as many problems and fees that are associated and that's what Benna talks about it being out of control and a monster. My point is actually a bigger one that now how do you land the thing? So how do you take a asset base of whatever you've saved through skill or luck and turn that into income for 30 or 40 years? funds inside of a 401k or an IRA can't accomplish that. I really like that because um, basically, yeah, you just want that financial freedom rather than retirement. And I don't think a lot of people think about the landing of the plane. Um, so can you tell us a little bit more about maybe the details of this free cash flow generation? Because I mean, obviously it varies by... Um, each unique client. And I was thinking about going through maybe a hypothetical scenario of a client, um, but that might be too much detail. Um, But let's say you have this client who's done the good job of saving, but then it's kind of the time to land the plane. How do you kind of navigate the details of that? Well, the the planning and and all of the different factors and whether it be the rules and the taxes and coordination can get complicated and hairy. And some folks have literally moving boxes of, of statements and different stuff. Americans are great collectors and we have all sorts of 
we just think the more and more money we have, the more stuff we're supposed to buy when I think the ultimate in sophistication is simplicity. So that part can get complicated, but the actual underlying ingredients, we believe that there's only a few that have stood the test of time for 100, 200, 300 years that have out, there are no Wall Street products needed wrapped around them. I mean, a beautifully boring risk-free bond, whether it be a tax-free municipal bond or a treasury bond, a which some folks know and understand and think, wow, that's great. I, I lasted this long to hear about a tax-free municipal bond. That's, that's no great new invention. That's exactly right. It stood the test of time for a reason. And I would estimate about 99% of the families I know wish they paid fewer taxes, and yet about 1% of American households own tax-free municipal bonds in their own name. That is a staggering disconnect, and there's a lot of reasons that people don't hear and read more about those beautiful, simple ingredients. And dividend-paying stocks can be just as beautifully boring. And while there's certainly no getting around fluctuating prices, if you're just focused on rising free cash flow, some of these have been able to go through every conceivable financial storm, 25, 50, 100 years. Um, and, and having a good portion completely removed from the market altogether and insured deposits. Um, the, you know, one of the, I think the next piece I'll put up there is just how much people are losing in their bank account not being in higher yielding money market. Um, there's companies that are moving tens of billions of dollars without even asking clients out into out of higher yielding and into lower yielding savings rates just as they've waited the savers are getting punished again they've waited for higher interest rates for a decade they're finally getting them and they're once again losing so just all of you know removing a lot of those unforced errors and banking yourself as we like to call it whether you're 10 years old like that little kid and we talk to clients grandkids about owning one share of a stock or looking at a bond that's exactly what the bank does with your money they'll take half of it and own risk-free assets by rule and then they will speculate with the rest by way of loans and con construction the community why not do that yourself you can do the same simple plan and you bank yourself you cut up a middleman and you keep um, all that net interest margin which is gigantic yeah exactly so I want to kind of just ask a question to be a little bit of a devil's advocate. So it seems like the strategy that you're proposing is very much margin of safety. You're 100% going to be okay. You got the cash flow greater than your costs. But what do you say to somebody who maybe says, ah, well, maybe I don't want it to be 100% um, that I'm going to be okay till I'm 100. Maybe I want to enjoy a little bit more right now in maybe the earlier years rather than maybe taking the odds that I'm going to live to 100. What do you kind of say to that person? I don't think it's devil's advocate at all. I actually have seen where through greater discipline, the opposite result than most folks are afraid of occurs, which is actually more freedom and creativity. And by that, I mean, all we've done is we've, as 
we've taken this Wall Street ROI model where it's always about making more money and stuffing more assets under their management for obvious reasons with good and bad results. There's plenty of good solutions and periods of time where you can and should try to make as much money as you can. I'm just suggesting that it at least is worth considering turning that mountain upside down of their assets and saying, how am I going to be reunited with my money, number one? And so if I turn ROI upside down and now I'm focused on the I first, which is income, and if I establish or dig my wells before I'm thirsty as much as I can for these future streams of recurring income, good old-fashioned mailbox money, then I think you can take risks we call the O opportunity. So ROI upside down would be income first, then shoot the lights out with as much risk as you want to do, not just in the stock market, but business or whatever else there is out there where capital you don't rely on for income. And then the very top of that mountain for us is just a different, almost spiritual uh, conclusion, which is reason. After you have income, after you are taking opportunity that can outpace inflation and pay for dreams and projects aside from your fixed income, then what's the real reason to do this at all? I don't think it's to have a big mountain of money that you look at and stare at. I know Wall Street would like that, but I think there, there, there are reasons. I think there's even a recession in philanthropy when folks are very correctly scared of, do I have enough money? I'm afraid I'm going to live longer. I don't know about interest rates. And so naturally, I think people are afraid to do a lot of things that, that a discipline plan can actually unleash. And if you can look and show your spouse, we've got the income, we have enough to take risk without worrying. And then all of a sudden, whatever is extra can really, really do some good. That's what gets in. And, and if the math doesn't add up, then it just means stick to your craft a little longer. And let's go double down on the most, the, the, the biggest bang on your own investment buck, which is your craft, which it always is. And, and never losing sight of that. This isn't about how investments are supposed to take care of. You're supposed to take care of yourself first through your hard work and whatever you're able to save. Then let's plan. But I couldn't agree more with your question that I think there is a whole heck of a lot of reasons. And we literally call it just that to do this beyond the numbers on the page. No, that's that's great nuance right there. Um, no, I appreciate that. So I do want to go back to, this is kind of at the beginning, um, you said not enough people are sitting down at the dinner table and talking about these things. So just what are some things in your own family that you like to talk about at the dinner table and maybe some lessons that you tried to instill in your kids? Well, now I'm cheating. I, I'm I'm lobbing up questions, but I'm actually trying to steal their answers because my son was way ahead of me on Netflix, for example. And I laughed at him and showed him the free cash flow and all the money they were burning. And he was right and I was wrong. So I think <laughs> the, the the Peter Lynch example, one of my favorite memories is he said, follow your daughters to the mall. Well, since nobody goes to the mall anymore and my daughters are told not to waste a lot of money shopping. That was, that was a problem. So I did the next best thing. I would say I posted a chart of what happens if you follow your son to the couch 
and watch all of the Netflix and video games and Domino's pizza and all of those (laughs) trades that are often sitting right under our nose. I remember being so out of my mind on why these kids were playing, not mine as much, thankfully, but these video games were just absolutely tearing these families apart and really agonizing over them. So I, the only thing I know how to do to, to relieve that stress, I put on my detective's hat and went on a deep dive and figured out what in the world is happening with this eSports. I'm a, a regular sports junkie. I had no knowledge of any of that. And after a month and a couple of tire kicking trips and meeting some really smart people, I came away completely with a changed mind and an eye towards opportunities there. So the conversation is really two ways, number one. But I think my favorite question, as many of those game changers as this next generation is going to be conditioned to look for, I almost think to a fault where everybody wants to be an entrepreneur, everybody wants to strike it rich. I'm trying to share the principles of the the picks and shovels guys on the outside of those gold rushes that they tend to stand the test of time. I mean, right near the gold rush, the stadium is named after Levi Strauss, not any of the gold diggers, the guy who sold the denim to the winners and the losers. So my favorite question at the dinner table is what business do you think it's going to still be in the same business when you're my age? And I get, I have from a 16 year old to a six year old. So my answer is <laughs> very wildly, <laughs> but that is a question I think we should all think about because I think game unchangers are much more uncrowded and often much more profitable and long lasting. Yeah. It's like um, Bezos talks about what are the things that aren't going to change the customer is going to want lower prices, more selection. Um, so what are some of the answers that you get from your kids? What businesses do they think will stay in the same business? Well, they, we, we, as we're sitting around the, the dinner table, one of them finally came up with one of my favorite answers. And it just happened to be the only reason I'm thinking of it now is we're all worried about trade wars and what it can do to the market short term. It made me go research and read and nerd out on the original trade wars, which were actually over spices. And so they pointed to the pepper shaker sitting right in front of me. (laughs) And there are a couple of things like that that won't have changed in my grandmother's pantry and my kids. And I find that fascinating, number one, and it just is really a cool thought project for a nerd. And to think about the businesses that can stand those tests of times, um, that that was one of my favorites that they came up with recently. The pepper shaker. <laughs> I guess you got McCormick. <laughs> yep, McCormick that's the player. one. That, that, yep, they've been through a few trade wars for sure. <laughs> they started them. <laughs> that's awesome. And I, I and I, you know, we, we I, I was posting a. A recent one about, and down here in Houston, we had to turn on the air conditioners again already. And I had, I was amazed that in since 1980, the number of air conditioners has quintupled in the United States. And as I was digging about stuff like that, that just 
doesn't change and actually is goosed by migration patterns and the hottest five years ever experienced on the planet. Naturally, just to punctuate my research project, I talk about those rabbit holes. Sometimes they get sweaty. My air conditioner here goes out. <laughs> so I got to, so I got to have a deep dive with the HVAC guy. And that's another piece of advice I give my kids and interns and anybody. Talk to the delivery guy. Talk to the AC guy. Ask them. Th- those guys are, I've always said, much more interesting and have more stories than a lot of the research reports that you read. And by the time I left Wall Street, the disclaimers at the back of the research reports were longer than the research. I have honestly learned more in those conversations. And I think the ultimate lesson there for kids is the more extroverted you are, the more lucky you're going to be. Yeah, you mentioned kind of those Peter Lynch principles of kind of getting out there because the Wall Street analyst is sitting in his cubicle versus you're actually out in the ground. Yeah, when people are interested in like, oh, what investment book should I read? That's usually the one I point them to, one up on Wall Street. Yeah, that was a good one. And um, I, I never have stopped believing that curiosity over conviction, and I apply that through every aspect of my life, and, and specifically to stocks, I do think whoever turns over the most rocks wins. Totally. Um, so don't want to take up too much of your time, but I was just kind of wondering um, to maybe ask some more pointed questions. So are there any personal habits that you do on a daily basis that are really important to you? I have tried to be better about subtle, simple movements. Like I learned from that book I mentioned earlier, the author I've grown very fond of, and he said, as long as we're going to live till 100, we better figure out how to make our money last till 100. Let's do this. And we've swapped notes, and I've devoured his book and given it to as many clients as I can. Uh, He really turned my head on, it's not about extreme exercise or extreme diet. It's about the communities where subtle movements are a natural course. It's walking instead of driving. It's not powerlifting. It's just gardening. It's not extreme diets that you dread and can't stick with. Go ahead and have a glass of wine with dinner, especially if you're with family or friends, that purpose and those relationships. I think that when you when you pull pull back and, and leave the office and, and leave all the numbers and the sheets behind, I'm more and more aware kind of at halftime of my life that I think whoever has the biggest memory bank and the deepest roster of relationships, I think wins this game. And, and that's what I'm trying to work and be better and better at. And I got five kids, so it's easy. I got a lot of opportunities for, <laughs> for laughs and memories. That's awesome. Um, so one more I want to ask is what you probably would disagree with me, but I, I just think from reading your stuff, even talking to you now that you are a very wise person. So what lessons do you try to instill in your kids that maybe aren't necessarily business related, but, um, you know, kind of life lessons? If I, if I had to wrap it up, 
the old the old trader in me would say most of those examples are stories and I'm trying to I think it's great to talk less and do more and every opportunity especially as the kids get older and less and less I think they all converge to me on this trade of appreciation for expectation and I think whether you're talking about how you look at the market or how you look at life golly I don't know if that doesn't answer just about every one of my dilemmas questions challenges more appreciation and less expectation I think that's a great way to wrap up the show. I just want to say thank you, Ryan. Um, really appreciate the wisdom that you've imparted to us. And yeah, I really enjoyed talking. Well, thank you as one of your listeners first before we ever knew each other. I, I will say on behalf of them, thanks to you. You provide an awesome forum for incredible lineups and ideas to be exchanged that I devour and listen to. Um, so thank you. Oh, thanks. That really means a lot. Thanks again for listening. You can find more information at www.investingcity.org where you can sign up and subscribe for our email newsletter that goes out every Tuesday and Friday. And you can also follow us on basically every social media platform on the face of the earth. And if you're feeling extra generous, please leave us an iTunes review as it really helps us out. And with that, have a fantastic day.